Thank you for tuning in to Sparks and Honey's Daily Culture Briefing. My name is Ben Grinspan, and today we're going to be looking at culture in the vertical, using Q, our cultural intelligence platform, to unpack trends and changes in human behavior. Uh, joining me today is my co-briefer, Carrera Kurdic. We're also joined by our in-house panel of experts, Kyle Snar and Saif Ahmed. And today we're joined by a guest, uh, our, our Omnicom cousin, uh, I guess you could say, Ro Kaladar. She is a global director of content and culture at Omnicom, and we're always when she joins us. Thank hey. you. Favorite part of my job to be here. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> well, we always love that. And you can also see that uh, we have a pretty big group as well of students in today. And a quick shout out to Trish Rubin, who is the original Sparks and Honey amplifier and who we are so thrilled is in our audience today. And well, there's, there's no coincidence that, that Roe is in today because, um, you know, within the Omnicom network, I think we're all different kinds of storytellers. And we wanted to take a, a little bit of time today to ask ourselves what's going on in the world of immersive storytelling. How are we getting uh, more experiential, more engaging, tapping deeper into people's hearts and minds, uh, doing storytelling, whether we're talking about television or hotels or, or advertising. It is a big, important part of everything we do here, um, and certainly everything uh, that, um, that uh, everybody in, within the Omnicom network does. And we're gonna start here with this big question, right? Because we don't want to know just what's going on in the world of immersive storytelling. I think our big question is, Carrera and I, we're discussing it, is what's driving this new world of immersive storytelling? Is it new technology? Is it new consumer demands? Or is it a little bit of both? There's almost a chicken and the egg question. Does the technology let the immersive storytelling happen? Or does the immersive storytelling push us to be better with our technology? And so that is why uh, we're, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And let's dig into our elements of culture. This is our, our proprietary trend taxonomy. It lets us track uh, the changes that, are, that happen around us, both in culture and in the market. And I'll start here with our top element of culture, meme culture. And I think in part, because one thing, this, I think this pops up in part, because one thing that we've seen a lot with uh, immersive storytelling is virality. That the whole goal of getting someone to experience storytelling in a different way is to make something go viral, is to make something, uh, ex you know, excel in this media ecosystem. Kara, what are some of the other important elements of culture here for, for our story today? Yeah, I think we've seen over the last couple of years that nostalgia is such a powerful motivator for getting people in, uh, out and watching content. If you can appeal to someone's, like, uh, inner child, that's often a great way to, to compel people to watch your content. And then I also love multi-sensory experiences. We're obviously going to be diving into so many of those. We're going to talk a lot about the metaverse, yep. and that's going to play a huge role when we talk about this EOC. Yeah, a couple other ones I want to point out real quick. Mixed reality, that number 11 one, that is, like, literally our element of culture about some of the immersive storytelling. But... I also want to note camera culture because we live in a world of, of Instagram and, and TikTok and the idea that we're just experiencing stories in immersive spaces without also sending them out to the world, well, that's really only half the story. So let's, uh, let's dive on in here, actually, and, and we'll start here. Um, we don't show a lot of articles from French philosophy magazines, um, but this signal, uh, which I thought was super revealing, I came across for some research for a global client. We were looking into some, uh, some storytelling trends and came across this one from uh, Philosophie, which is, I guess, a, a French online web magazine that asks a really interesting question about immersive art and whether it's a unique experience or, frankly, 
a scam. So the best known of these immersive art shows that we're talking about is the Van Gogh experience, where users and their smartphones um, wander around uh, these sort of open spaces and attempt to sort of live within the famous uh, painter's uh, dreamy swirls of color. New expositions at the National Museum of Natural History in Paris and an immersive art experience at a major museum in Lille focusing on the work of Goya are also expanding where these immersive art shows are showing up uh, in France. Um, but again, uh, th this article asks, do these exhibitions really show art and why is there such enthusiasm for them? And so th that's where this article gets really interesting and a little heady, a little bit, philosoph a little bit philosophy, right? So uh, Anthony uh, Chantanacon uh, writes that there is an immersive digital art can and should be different from mere representations of images you know, recreated using digital means, right? Where most museums prohibit physical interaction with the art, these immersive spaces are designed to interact with the art, right? That's a fairly different way of engaging with, say, the work of Van Gogh or Goya. At the same time, however, he says that to break an image out of the context in which it was created, literally the frame which perhaps uh, Vincent Van Gogh put it in, might change the nature of that art. Um, and we don't really know in some ways whether or not Van Gogh wanted people wandering around his art. He may have had his own ideas about how to experience that. And that, this article points to, is the paradox. Should this kind of immersive art be sort of fun and experiential in this very 21st century way? Or does it distract a little bit from the actual 19th or even 16th, uh, 17th century art uh, of Goya? Does the art lose something if it becomes this, this place to just wander around and take selfies, right? And I thought that was a really interesting uh, question that, that also gets back to that bit of a chicken and the egg question we asked earlier about should, does, does technology drive these experiences in this art of storytelling or should the art and the storytelling drive the experience? So I guess my question for the panel, you know, we think about, uh, again, this show in Lille or the Van Gogh experience in Paris or, or even spaces like Meow Wolf in, in Santa Fe and, and Las Vegas that are these big immersive art experiences. I guess the question is, why are they so popular right now? What are they, what, what, how are they connecting with their audiences. And Ro, as our guest, I might ask you to, to, to weigh in as why, why you think we're hungry for these immersive spaces. Well, I think art requires effort on the part of the viewer of the art. And a lot of people don't know where to start. And so I think this helps make it accessible and gives people kind of like the journey to follow to be able to understand and experience the art. And I think there's a balance. You can't do all of the work for people because it becomes less fulfilling, but you can give them a little bit of a roadmap to create their own experience and try to get a little bit closer to understanding. Yeah, mm -hmm. all right, I like that. Any other thoughts, you guys? I was gonna say, you know, adapt or die, right? Like, mm. we don't want these <laughs> things to be forgotten. Yeah. Right, and so if the next generations of art appreciators need some sort of inroads that like Ro was just talking about so that these are not forgotten and that my kids know who these artists are in their life yeah. like that i think that's a valid reason to say all right let's break the confines of the frame yeah. and allow it to exist in a way that can be more accessible and remembered right and it, it makes me wonder in a certain way if, if we keep seeing more of these immersive spaces i mean don't get me wrong the louvre the met these are enormous spaces but they're not often set up for these fully immersive experiences and i wonder if there aren't design and architecture implications, where when the, you know, when the Museum of Fine Art in Chicago, when they next renovate, do they need a big open space where they can have the, that is sort of meant for experiential art 
uh, rather than, say, static art. So that, those are the, the, you can see there are like a ton of implications to storytelling once we start getting more immersive. Um, Kurt, tell us about uh, volumetric video, which is another very cool bleeding edge uh, technology within storytelling. Absolutely, I got really excited about this signal. With volumetric video, we're looking at this nascent technology that's gonna really revamp how we think about holograms, digital humans, gaming, even maybe like workplace trainings, definitely brand activations, and definitely the metaverse. So a little bit about what volumetric video is, it is the 3D capturing of an object in three-dimensionality uh, in real time. So. It's a stage like this, and you might have your scene take place in the middle, and you've got cameras all the way around. So you can get every single angle of the scene. And so you might wonder, like, well, how is this different than 360 video? You know, the thing that the Google car does? Mm -hmm. Well, the 360 video does let you see a 360 of a scene, but it doesn't give you any depth into it. Volumetric video gives you depth to the point where if you were to watch a live-action film with a VR headset, you could walk around the scene as it's playing out and watch the, the cowboy rob a bank from like every angle it, it essentially lets you be the director mm. um, and so this this article in particular has some fascinating use cases everything from live-action films to worksite training videos but I'm interested in the panel um, and what you guys think about uh, different applications of this technology should we ask our CTO? <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean I, it, I, this, this seems exciting actually for all sorts of training and non-entertainment use cases, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I could imagine medicine, um, you know, defense, right? Um, uh, all, all, all sorts of things where, where you might need to be surprised in, yeah. in different ways, right? Um, so, uh, and, and then obviously entertainment as well. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, I hate to be the, okay. the editor on the, on this video, though, yeah. right? Like oh. editing like 15 <laughs> oh, yeah. different streams. Well, so. I, you know, this is funny. Uh, in graduate school, so we're, you know, uh, there's some experience here. I interviewed at a job that I, well, we didn't, I didn't end up getting it, but it was for um, a major financial company, right? And, and I love that you bring this up because it was an in house content specialist. And what they needed there was someone who could help talk to the people who are the mortgage backers, the traders, like because it was a really big, the, the creditors, to help explain to them why what they did mattered beyond dollars and cents. They want, they needed ways to explain that what they are doing actually does help fund, you know, water projects in, in, in Kenya, right? And I love what you said about this idea of it could be, in some ways, a, a, a training tool, but a storytelling tool. Because if you could, if you are that, that creditor walking around that space and seeing what your work does for that village, for that community in Nairobi, suddenly that's a totally different experience about who you are and, and who your work impacts. Um, so there maybe are some really interesting implications there. I was reading about this. One of the biggest struggles that they're having right now is just the amount of data that this captures, totally. the storage of it, and where you can actually put it. You know, there, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of 5K cameras in there, yeah. all recording, you know, whatever, like like tons and tons and tons of just raw data that has, the storage for that does not exist yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we're so, far away from, like, use cases, but yeah. it's on the horizon. Yeah. Kristen, did you want to weigh in? I was just going to say, I feel like maybe we need to upgrade what we've got going on here and <laughs> upgrade <laughs> new to something like this. But the, the other thing I was going to say is, I think, I mean, obviously this is a, a, an upgrade based on what we have here in the studio. But when we built this studio, even from the very beginning, and Trish, you mentioned it earlier before we started, which was the whole idea was well beyond just external 
um, distribution of, of cultural content. It was all about, it was actually an internal yeah. um, part of our system in the way that we work. And so it was an internal storytelling in a way to think about upskilling and discussing the types of content and the types of, of essentially the work that we do at Sparks and Honey. And so I feel like this is one play, but uh, in terms of, a, I don't know if it's, this organization trying to do this maybe internally for themselves and there's maybe they're selling this yeah but the whole idea is that even if with what we're doing here this is this is a version of an internal and external way to think about um you know kind of storytelling and why we have this studio built at all so. yeah mm -hmm. um let's move on to uh, some more technology news so social media apps are also increasingly changing who has access to some pretty impressive uh, storytelling technologies, right? So this piece in Business Insider India talks about Faceplay, which is a global app that lets users swap their face with celebrities and create short videos where they uh, presumably, uh, I don't know, I assume they'd be recreating the movie Face Off with, uh, with Nick Cage and John Travolta, which is kind of about that. But as the article points out, there are some ethical implications to these technologies, right, to these deep fakes. First, there's privacy. If you are downloading Faceplay, you can guarantee that those people are pulling all of your data and you do not own the product that you produce. But more so than that, there are some major ethical issues. Deepfakes have been used to embarrass celebrities and politicians. And as apps like this get uh, more and more accessible, as the technology becomes more and more believable, suddenly something that starts as a sort of fun storytelling device can actually grow into something very problematic in an era of polarization, misinformation, and fake news. So I'd love to talk here about deepfakes for a second and, and see if we think that this is the kind of technology that brands should be dabbling in, because there might be some, some impetus to do that. But there are some really serious ethical questions to ask first, and I, I, I guess I'm curious your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. Well, I've said this on the briefing before. I love and I'm so interested in deepfake technology from a consumer point of view and this idea that you could cast anyone you want in a commercial or in a movie. You know, you just type onto the back end or, you know, a, a user face from maybe right. this app itself. Oh, I want to know what it would be like for Nicolas Cage to play the queen in that biopic. Or I want to know what it would be like for Samuel L. Jackson to play that character or me to play that character or my friend or my mom. Yeah. So I think... Uh, if I could tag this to the last signal, where it's like you kind of remove the director and you yourself can view a scene from any um, angle, yeah. this kind of removes the casting director. And I think the future of content is just allowing audiences to have more say in what they're seeing and more uh, customizability. I think that's true, but let's also tag that back to the, the signal before that, where we're asking ourselves questions about what the original artist intended for the art. Does it... Uh, you know, if we want to cast Nicolas Cage instead of uh, Helen Mirren in The Queen, like, does that, you know, uh, does that change uh, the, uh, the, the goals of the, of the director, the artist, all those people who were involved in it to see this bizarre mashup? <laughs> yeah, and I'd also hope that all of the parties have opted in to being cast in, right? Because yeah. it could get creepy, too. Yes. Especially when you're, like, resurrecting dead actors. It's like, yeah, who signs off on that? We might see actors kind of signing clauses while they're alive to say, okay, fine, you can use my likeness in the next James Bond movie. Right, exactly. And then it's hard. <laughs> How do you pay a dead actor? Whatever. 
Um, <laughs> um, let's talk about Snap, which is also experimenting with some new storytelling technology. Yes. The latest AR-enabled Snap spectacles by Snapchat are currently in testing, and they allow users to see and hear AR filters in the real world. So third-party developers can now create Snap lenses that are tied to real-world locations, um, and the company is giving itself a chance at being one of the major players that figures out how to integrate AR into the real life. Um, and we've seen kind of AR try and fail. I mean, we've seen Google Glass, and we've seen the HoloLens. Snap Spectacles have tried like three times to make this a thing. And so I'm curious, why don't we think, why do we think that this tech isn't sticking? And what would it take, and what type of campaign would it take to have AR and AR glasses integrated into our everyday lives? I want to start with Saif here. Yeah, uh, so uh, we started with me because I actually developed some Google Glass apps about eight years ago. Okay. Um, it definitely didn't stick back then. Yeah. Uh, the battery life was like 20 minutes on the Google Glass, so uh, it was just not practical uh, with AR. Um, the other thing was the developer experience was was just not there, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it, even if even if battery life wasn't an issue, it, it was just too difficult to develop things for it. Snap has really changed that. They really figured this. So I was looking at the, the Snap Studio to develop new apps. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what creates like the, the broad set of apps that draws consumers in, hmm. right? So that's really exciting. Ro, what do you think it might mean for Snap's brand to figure this out? Should they figure that out? Well, I think if you think about the Snapchat app, it's kind of plur. Pr proliferated. And I think it's just like that access to technology. They have the opportunity to create something that is pretty affordable and that multiple people could have access to, whereas something like the Oculus or yeah. those types of technologies are so much more expensive and require a lot more barrier to entry. And so if they can get this right, it could be something that's in the hands, the hands of everyone like fairly quickly. Yeah. I think that's such a good point because I read that one of the things that uh, Facebook is, is candidly considering doing is, is while they have really big and I think bold metaverse plans, there are questions about that hardware. And so there are questions, does Facebook need to open up retail stores to sell those, uh, those headsets to people to make, the universe, to make the metaverse really valuable? I think, you know, you asked what can make this stick. First of all, let's not make the glasses look like grandma glasses. Okay, but I think they're kind of chic. But, <laughs> and then, but I, think, I think the other thing is, you know, like one of the big award-winning kind of AR apps last year was Ikea's app where you can, like, put furniture in your room at the right dimension to make sure something looks good, but yep. also that it fits the room, which is super handy. I think what the remit of this is, what they're trying to say is, like, forget buying the furniture you want in the room, put these on and design the room to look the way you want it to look all the time, all the time, you know, and just like, so you can just live in the space you want to live in without ever having to buy the furniture, you know, right. make your crappy apartment look amazing, you know, <laughs> put these glasses on and wear them all the time. So I think that's where this is headed, yeah. is mm -hmm. like creating the space you want to have it look the way you want without having to necessarily buy the furniture. I mean, I love the idea of your, of your like haptic furniture and your like digital furniture, you know, and trying to figure out which you want. Uh, Van Gogh. Yeah, exactly. You, go. you know, Full circle. you can step right into it. All right. So, you know, I think one interesting thing that we were talking about a little bit earlier with the volumetric data is that it, uh, camera is that these aren't just new storytelling memes, right? We, we use stories because they, they light up the parts of our brain that, that are closest to empathy, to memory, um, and, and to emotion. So, Carrera, tell us a little bit 
about this very interesting signal about how VR can be used as a, as a literal empathy machine. Yeah, totally. So this signal goes through some examples of activations or even just art pieces that have put audiences in the place of other people to for the purposes of causing empathy. So there's one where you sit down in a photo booth and there's a person telling you a story and you don't know that there's a camera on you and slowly as this person is telling the story, it superimposes your face onto theirs. And it's, you know, it's like a heartbreaking story of someone's lived experience. Um, and so you watch yourself kind of become them and in some sense form um, a connection. Um, <laughs> I see there's some laughter in the audience. There's another project in here where you put on the VR headset and you live a life as other people and that life might be the journey of, um, uh, of an immigrant coming to America or the journey of a woman getting catcalled in the street. So my question to the panel is, you know, oftentimes when we think of film, even like Oscar-nominated films, they attempt to put us in the shoes of other people and really, like, see what it might be like for other people and how they live. When it comes to empathy VR, though, um, is this a step forward for empathetic storytelling or is it kind of like, is being a tourist in someone else's pain kind of like, very creepy. What do you guys think? I mean, you're talking about a technology that's, that, that isn't necessarily tied to the narrative. The narrative has to be there, right? If mm -hmm. the storytelling isn't there to back up, just because you can do this doesn't necessarily mean you should or that it would work. But if you've got the storytelling along with it, if this was an experience that is crafted you know, with amazing storytellers and with amazing content, I mean, there's lots of mediums that can work, but the, the storyline has to be there. Yeah. Row, is this the next big sort of like, I don't know, uh, brand purpose technology? I mean, it, it's funny because I, I tell clients all the time no one cares about press releases, right? The press release is no longer a, a valuable uh, technology for building, for talking about your, your empathetic values. So is, I mean, is VR that, that, next, uh, that next means? I think it could be, and I think it's an opportunity to change the kind of narratives we're telling. So instead of telling the heartbreaking story, yeah. we can tell that person's like small experience of joy, and in that kind of more like nuanced tale, we see like the broader picture of the kind of heartbreaking situation they're living in. But it's not necessarily that like gut wrenching, painful story. Right. Yeah. I wonder if we step away from entertainment and maybe think of it even in like a policy format. What it would it be like to try and convince your senators what it would be, how hard it is to maybe get like an abortion in Alabama by putting them into the VR and, and really showing them what it would be like. And maybe as an empathy machine, it has more yeah. context that way. I wonder if there are limits to that in that, and, and I'll get neurochemical here for a second. A lot of those, like those, uh, a lot of those chemicals that our brain produces, like serotonin and oxytocin, the bonding and happiness ones, we create them more in person, one on one, than we do with technology or we do by ourselves. And there's like really good evidence to back that up. And so, yes, I think VR technology could be a really cool means of uh, of telling these valuable stories. And I love the idea of finding some level of joy and not making it relentlessly grim, but. When it comes to policy, I mean, I, I wonder if you don't need that face-to-face -face interaction to really feel it, that our brains are actually wired for that human-to-human -human contact in a mm -hmm. way that VR technology might not be able to do now or potentially ever. So I love where your head's at, um, but I also wonder, like, there might be limits, you know? It's like that thing where, you know, David Koch didn't donate to cancer research until he had it. So I wonder if this is something 
Yeah. That could play in that space. Not an amazing thing for someone to brag about. Anyway, <laughs> um, all right, let's keep moving because I did. So we've seen a lot of stuff about um, technologies here, right? So the, the next couple signals we're going to talk about, advertising and maybe a couple other ways in which people are doing this immersive storytelling. And I, I am going to click in uh, here as, as we were discussing earlier. Uh, oh, I guess the link's not live. Um, as we were discussing earlier, uh, it is May 4th. It is uh, sort of the day that people celebrate uh, Star Wars. So we did have to pull a Star Wars signal for you. Now, uh, Disney World's Star Wars-themed Galactic Star Cruiser Hotel opened with a splash on March 1st, promising Star Wars fans incredible, fully immersive hotel experiences built around their favorite uh, intellectual property. And yet, as the New York Post reports here, quote, the immersive Orlando-based Star Wars hotel has faced fierce backlash by Disney World fans over sky-high room rates, food costs, and Star Wars-themed extras like a private portrait session. Um, and the, the, the rates here for the hotel are really nuts, right? Packages start at $5,000 and go up to $20,000 for this immersive hotel experience, ensuring that only the most dedicated or wealthiest Star Wars obsessives really get to find out what it's like to spend a night inside the Millennium Falcon. Now, I'm sure anyone who's taken kids to Disneyland can, can, or Disney World can attest to the fact that it's not a cheap, uh, it's not a cheap place to go, but certainly uh, $20,000 might explain some of those room vacancies. And the Post also reports that um, in other reviews, uh, people say that you know, that there is some level of immersion here that sort of takes you out of it. So when you're paying $13 for a glass of wine, the cocktails start at $23, which is expensive even for New York, are sort of moments that take you back, uh, that, that break you out of the fantasy. It doesn't matter how well designed it is. But there are also, there are also some design issues, too. It is functionally a windowless space. Um, so while you may feel like you are in the Millennium Falcon, and while they do project outer space out the windows, that doesn't mean that it that necessarily feels like you are hurtling through a galaxy far, far away. So beyond the price, my question for the panel is, what might some other struggle, what might some other lifestyle-focused brands like Star Wars that wants to sell you on movies and toys and pajamas and T-shirts, what might be some other things, that, that some other challenges that they face as they try to build out these more immersive experiences? And if anyone has recently been the M&M candy store in, uh, you know, uh, in Times Square, please let us know. Well, I'll, maybe I'll start as yeah. the bona fide Star Wars fan as I'm repping <laughs> today. Um, you know, I think that when you've got, it depends on the property, right? I yeah. mean, M&Ms, I mean, people care, but I don't know if they care as much about, you know, what maybe well, the what color the they eat. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they, maybe what color of M&M they eat, but like, yeah. but when you've got an IP that people care, like, heavily about yeah you have to thread needles that are really hard to thread and right. let's face it disney's had a up and down track record of of how they've handled that ip and some have been fan favorites and some have been derided and this yeah. could just be one of the casualties of how it's being handled yeah so i'd say to a brand like you know understand your your fandom right and if your fandom requires threading the smallest of needles you know be, be maybe more conservative and maybe a little risk adverse, you know. But, you know, if you've got a property that doesn't have so much, I don't know, cultural weight yeah. on it, then maybe it's worth experimenting and pushing the envelope. I'm curious, has anybody here been to the Harry Potter worlds that have popped up in uh, 
uh, Universal Studios, I guess. I just, I just got back. All right. <laughs> well, uh, we have uh, our, our, our culture scout, Kristen Cohen, here. How was, how was the immersion? Did it feel, I'm sure you've read the Harry Potter books, at least to yourself, or if not out loud to Frankie. How did it feel? Okay, I mean, it, it was, I, I actually thought some of the interactivity in the space that they had was actually really fun. Um, it was expensive, for sure. Yeah. Um, but they have things like the wand that you get that's special. We have all the wands, but, <laughs> but these are interactive with the actual park where with different wands, different things can happen when you stand in different places within the park that she was really, really into. She's 11. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought just in general, the people that were there were all pretty excited of all ages. I thought the design was was awesome. And um, they I feel like they, they really tried to get all the details right on it. But again, I've only been to, to yeah. that one. Well, and I, I'm not surprised to hear that they got the details right because just as, just as, uh, as Kyle was saying, these are properties that people are obsessed with, and it's actually kind of wild that Disney has had a swing and a miss here, as they say, with this Star Wars hotel, and I, I do think the price is part of it, but it also just doesn't seem... You know, I think one important part of... Uh, one thing we talk a lot about in advertising is, is surprise and delight, right? Uh, and it sounds to me like there was quite a bit of that at, in, in the Harry Potter world, and it sounds to me like they struggle with that here despite all the uh, opportunities. Uh, one one thing to note, with especially with a hotel and a custom-built location like this, yeah. is you can only serve so many people, right? So you have to make up for that cost somehow. With immersive art or digital or AR experiences, yeah. right, your marginal cost of serving every customer is almost zero, right? Yeah, right. So you can recover the cost much more easily with a long tail of customers, mm. right, which you could never do with something like this. Yeah, yeah. I think that's 100% right. All right, so we promised you two advertising signals because obviously this is an advertising space. Um, and I think this is really, really cool. We're going to start very, very fringe here. Yes. We're looking at an experiment in which 18 subjects watched a strange video, much like you see behind you, um, featuring synth-laden soundtrack and natural images with uh, glimpses of Coors lights cans um, in the background. The participants were then asked to drift off to sleep while listening to eight-hour soundtracks of the video. And Coors stated the goal was kind of science fiction worthy. The company wanted to, in quote, shape and compel the subconscious into dreaming about beer. And shockingly, it seemed to work. Around 30% of participants reported that Coors products made an appearance in their dreams. And so this article is all about dream advertising. They, they talked to an MIT scientist, um, who looks at technologies that um, kind of interact with dreams. And he said, on one hand, dream manipulation is gaining acceptance. There's a lot of studies on it. You can do it. Um, and all of these are great applications. But then on the other hand, he says, oh, shit, the advertisers are coming. So he's kind of on the other side of that. But Coors isn't the only big brand looking into dreams as a potential ad space. So Microsoft is exploring ways to make programmer gamers dream about their favorite Xbox games. Burger King rolled out a Halloween-themed burger in 2018 that claimed to clinically clinically proven to induce nightmares. And then several large airlines have reached out to MIT's Dream Study PhDs um, to help with commercially driven dream incubation products. Um, I'll just end on one stat here that was interesting. The American Marketing Association of New York said that 77% of marketers said they have plans to experiment in dream technology in the next three years. So I don't believe that. <laughs> 
I am shocked by that. Yeah, they're on surveys, it's just like, would you do it? And they're like, yeah. And they're like, yeah. okay, great. Sure. Um, <laughs> okay, so just general question. Should you be allowed to advertise in dreams? What's the ethical implication here? Ooh. What do we think? Lauren, let's hear the corporate perspective. <laughs> I mean, if I, I think if it is like, FDA regulated or like doctor regulated and there are certain protocols and tests that it has to go through like I'd rather have a dream about a Coors Light than like my stress dream about getting to the airport like I'd sign up for that beyond the the implications of advertising. I love the idea that you find out what people's stress dreams are about getting to the airport and then like JetBlue and LaGuardia like sell you advertising in your brain such that you're like you know it was just a real dream to get there the, the TSA pre-check. We paralysis the the dream paralysis monster is just like right this way. You right on, but you made it in time. What are you worried about? I think if you're solving, if you position it as solving a problem, people will yeah sign up for it. I guess I'm confused about. I mean, is the th is the idea that like you would basically tune into something and it would play some music functionally? Do you have to watch? I mean, this is giving me this made me a little nauseous anyway. Yeah. Um. Well, there's some talk about, like, how many people have at-home uh, smart speakers and that they can tell when you're in REM cycles and they would play it there, and you might not even know that this is happening to you. I'm kind of on the side of, like, don't do this mm. because you yeah. can't really opt in if it's subconscious. That's, that's the key is, like, you have to be able to choose to see it, mm -hmm. you know, and if you don't have that, if that choice is been compromised in some way, this is right. not cool. Well, and I think you can't... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Aaron. I mean, I think there's a major application here about using our dream time, too, and, like, if it's advertised, if I have the choice to be advertised, do I also have the choice to, like, do, like, a doodle or something? Study like, could I use that? Sure. Can I use my dream time functionally or yeah. choose? Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge question that also... Well, and also, we're putting the cart before the horse here. I mean... If you were to develop a technology that would let you do this, wouldn't you want content before you wanted advertising, you know? Like, and we'll get actually into that in our, in our next signal, but I'd imagine if we got good enough at this, right, then you'd want to set some dream up where you're like, yeah, I want to dream that I'm on vacation in Puerto Rico, and then you'd have that experience, and then you would, advertisers would sell ads to Puerto Rico against that, right, or for sunscreen or rum or... Or something, you know? Like, you, you, well, you wouldn't just start by selling the, the core's content. Huh. Um, wow. We just got... That, is a, that, that was a deep and experimental one. Um, and I will actually point out that is, it, it's nicely tied to our final signal here about the world of, of storytelling. So, um, as Carrera said yesterday when we were discussing the signal, um, you know, oftentimes when we think about advertising, it's a thing uh, that people feel like they have to suffer through, right? Here in the States... We get advertising every five, ten minutes through a show. For our friends joining us from France, it's at the end of every show, but you still have to watch it. Um, and there, there may be a different way to change that, especially since advertising is tiny little storytelling moments, right? And the more immersive, the more powerful they can be, the better it is for the advertiser. So enter lightbeam.tv, which Adweek tells us, quote, is creating a TV channel funded uh, by branded content rather than 30 and 60 second uh, spot commercials. The startup currently exists on social channels like Instagram and TikTok and is set to debut as a connected TV uh, publisher in 2023, according to CEO and co-founder Stephanie Charis. As a TV channel, it aims to support itself exclusively through high-quality branded content interspersed throughout linearly programmed film festival-quality shows. The article helpfully sum summarizes the new channel, and I think this is interesting, is think the Criterion channel with ads if those ads weren't really ads. They are going for the highest level content with some branded experience within it, but you should never know 
when you're watching the documentary and when you're watching uh, the advertisement. The platform also hopes to, um, that the content uh, helps break some of the sort of doom and gloom of the modern day by telling more positive stories, working with brands who really want to specialize uh, sort of in those moments. And, um, you know, it's an interesting factor to throw in there. Not only can you tell an immersive story, but can you, uh, you know, just as, as Ro got at earlier, can you tell an immersive story where people leave feeling better about things than just telling uh, the, a story as, as uh, emotionally as possible? So I think the question for the panel here is, like, can, can you build immersive uh, advertising that rings true as content, right? That's what they're trying to do here. They're trying to create something that is fundamentally advertising that feels like content. And my question is, is there a way, can that be done? I'm going to go ahead and say, as long as I'm awake while watching this, I'm a fan. <laughs> this is good stuff, you yeah. know? I think that um, the, the way to do it is to just be, everyone's got to be in on the gig, yeah. Right. As long as the brand, the platform and the viewer have all kind of have agreed to this contract of like you're getting marketed to. But we promise this 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 storytelling is going to be worth it. Yeah. And as long as everyone's in on it and no one's trying to pass this off as something that isn't what it actually is. As soon as that contract is made, like like mentally the barriers fall down and you just kind of like go with it and that's where there's a huge opportunity the problem has been and you know prior to being here at sparks and honey i spent the last few years in publishing are, are the the pup the the publications and the, the content creators out there who are trying to sneak one past the goalie and try and, right. and try and not have to or minimize the 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 um presented by or sponsored by sort of tags that the government mandates are associated with branded content and yeah. tries to emulate actual, you know, organic content by editors. That's where that's where the contract is broken mm. and that's where people can, you know, will will start seeing through the cracks and reject what that is. So as long as the, all of that stuff is set from the beginning and you we're actually being super upfront, super transparent and kind of leaning into how awesome it can be when done right. Yeah. Then this is a great thing, and I think I would. I'd rather see. I'd way rather see branded content than content that's interrupted by commercials. Yeah, any day of the week. Well, you sold me. Anybody? Anybody want to play devil's advocate here? Um, I'll say that one thing that I find, and granted, I read a lot more online publications than normal people. Um, I often find it frustrating when. Well, I, I think it's what you were getting at. I often find it frustrating to see that content, which I think is not sponsored, at some point you do see it and you go, well, how can I trust anything that I see here? And I actually think that, in my mind, that, that the problem here is that maybe this is being, maybe this is how, just how millennials think. I suspect Gen Zers think this too. Like, that by sponsoring content, you inherently change the, what the content is. And you can't necessarily trust what you hear, even if it comes from some amazing documentarian. But Maybe what you need, and I'm seeing, I've seen Kristen's head bob very vigorously in the back. Um, maybe what you do need is, just as you were saying, is being really upfront. And instead of having the little sticker at the bottom saying sponsored by, you know, whatever company, um, be just clearer uh, uh, about that. So it's not something you're trying to sneak past people, but that you say, no, this was actually very much created in partnership with the cores like companies. Yeah. And I also think, think it's being mindful about where and when you're serving it. Yes. And I think in a, a platform like this one, in this example, it's they're very clear about this is what the, the, the platform is about. But if you're getting this somewhere where you don't expect to, it's very jarring. Totally. totally. And I if saw, it's about products mm -hmm. you're interested in, too, like 
if the products are woven into the storytelling and you're seeing them used in the way that you could conceivably use them, yeah. dude, bring it on. Mm. It's awesome. Hmm. Well, so, uh, you know, that was our final signal. I will say, just thinking about our bigger question here, I am coming away from this thinking that uh, it's both. I think everything we've seen today suggests that you need that really smart mix of, of sort of new technologies, understanding new consumer demands to understand where st uh, immersive storytelling is going. And that's actually really good news. That's a good thing for us as a consultancy and our friends joining us today, I think, to think about a little bit, which is how do you connect the technological behaviors and the human behaviors? Because that is where uh, immersive storytelling can really blossom. That's my wrap-up. Kyle, um, what should brands take away from this briefing today? Okay. Two things to say. I'll say a takeaway and a prediction. Does that work? Sure. Okay, so my takeaway is that I think that it, it, technology, I think, is driving the, the opportunity, right? Yeah. But it's about, it's about you know, not, not doing the tech without the storytelling woven directly in. It mm. can't just be layered on top. Yeah. It has to be part of the experience, like, totally woven into the technology. Thank you. Love that. And in ter terms of, you know, here at Sparks and Honey, we talk about possible, probable futures. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make just a pure, straight-up prediction Let's just because it is May the 4th be with you. Okay. Can I just, for the record, say there's going to be a day when there's someone at Disney right now who's figuring out what the, what the multiverse connection is going to be between a Star Wars and Marvel Oh, crossover. Oh, yes. Yes. I'm yes. just saying it's going to happen. <laughs> Predicted. Right. <laughs> just start, just start handing over your money right now. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess what, what trends have we discussed today that you think will have a, a long tail? Are they the tech trends? Are they sort of the human trends? What, what, what little moments here do you think are going to have um, some real growth potential going forward? Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of it is just driven by very basic things, right? Like increased bandwidth, better phones with, with better compute, yep. right? Easier development platforms. And once you, you have these, and all three of these are, are improving, right? Yeah. Once you have these, everything else just follows, yeah. right? Um, eight years ago, it was impossible making these things. The phones were too slow. You didn't have 5G, right? right? Batteries. Batteries wouldn't last, yeah. right? Um, so I sort of feel like if we trust in technology and, and the curve up, mm -hmm. right, everything will just get better and better. All right. I lo love to hear that. Ro, I'll, I'll give you the final note. What, what should agencies, what should, what should creative professionals take away from our conversation today? I think dream and do your due diligence. If you're going to do this, you kind of have to get it right. Yeah. And so really take the time to get the investment, get the resources, and understand how to, as Kyle said earlier, thread every needle through because we're smart. Our consumers are smart. Yeah. Uh, it's an amazing opportunity, but you can't half-ass it. I'm going to leave it with that. That is amazing. Well said. Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, a big shout-out and thank you to Carrera, Kyle, Saif, and Ro for joining us today. Thank you for joining us online. You can join us Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday at noon New York time on our LinkedIn page. While you're there, jump in the comments section. Let us know your thoughts on the subject of the day, what your experience is with what we're talking about. Um, if you're interested in Q, the cultural intelligence platform we use to build today's briefing and every day's, please feel free to reach out. It gives us incredible global qualitative and quantitative data uh, to help us do the, just this kind of deep dive. Tomorrow, we are looking into the future of weddings, weddings 2025. So please come. Uh, it is black tie optional. Uh, but we'd love to have you there then. So until tomorrow, consider yourselves briefed.